0: Bash it, bash it in, and the stones weep water and the stars sink underwater.
1: Welcome to the Poetry Magazine podcast. I'm Cindy Ji-yung oak and we have the exciting pleasure today of hearing some new poetry by writer and professor Kathy Park Hong. Kathy is the author of the book of essays, Minor Feelings, An Asian-American Reckoning, from One World, and three poetry collections, translating Mom from Hanging Loose Press, as well as Dance Dance Revolution and Engine Empire, both from W.W. Norton. Each poetry collection invents languages and bridges between them. There are personas, vernaculars, all these ways of resisting standardization and nationalization. And that critique is always performed with a sort of unique aplomb and very studied fragments. Today, we spend time with a new sequence called Spring and All, available in the September 2023 issue of Poetry. Kathy, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you for having me. So your new Poetry in the Magazine is from this series titled Spring and All, which is also the title of a William Carlos Williams book, which was, I think, first published almost exactly 100 years ago. (laughs) So he's a poet you've been familiar with for a long time. Were you engaging with his work differently for this new work, or is the title sort of incidental?
0: You know, I've always read William Carlos Williams, and I've always taught him as well. And actually, these uh, poems I call my pandemic poems, and I, and I was definitely hesitant to write pandemic poems. I think that's sort of a subject matter that was exhausted even before it began. And even though we're still technically in it, people feel, you know, hesitant or reluctant to read about it, but at the time, I was in between projects. And I was stuck in my apartment in Brooklyn. And this was early spring 2020.
1: 2020.
0: Yeah. So, you know, I was reading a lot of Williams, and I was just thinking about dailiness, the, the daily poem, which, you know, Williams sort of popularized as an aesthetic, just writing these kind of the dailiness of life. And I was thinking about how time changed radically because of the pandemic, because we were stuck, most of us were stuck in one space except for the frontline workers. And I was wondering, I was thinking, well, how does that change our concept of time? So it was a way when I was writing these poems these uh spring and all it was a way for me to kind of arrest time. So the title was in, definitely inspired by Williams and um his interest but I don't know if there's a real kind of direct faithful emulation of of his poetry. I was also thinking of the seasons and so forth and what that means and and it was also an experiment because I don't normally write this way. I don't normally write "quote unquote" daily poems. I'm usually very project
1: oriented. Yeah. So, what is it like now to revise or read this work from 2020? Do, does it bring you back to that mindset? Do you find yourself editing in a different way now that you're, you know, teaching in person? And
0: oh, it's an interesting question. I thought I would write. I wrote these poems. And then after I wrote them, I was like, I thought, okay, I'm um, closing this file. I'm never opening them up again. But then <laughs> I had a reading in Brooklyn and I didn't have any poems to read. <laughs> so yeah. I was like, well, and I opened up the file and I was like, well, I'll read these poems and see how it goes. So in that way, they kind of resurfaced and kind of became public again. And I mean, for a while, I was considering maybe making it book length. But then I realized that perhaps it can actually connect to a wider interest that I have that's related to this book of prose I'm working as well as these other poems because these pandemic poems are spring and all. I should stop calling them pandemic (laughs) poems. (laughs) It's an easily, it's so coinable to say something as pandemic blank. Um, I was thinking that, you know, there's also a lot of strains of motherhood in the poems as well. And I think in the back of my mind, while I was working on these poems, what doesn't really get discussed as much. I mean, we, of course there was headlines about the casualties, the people who died. But even now, I don't think there's been really any kind of, any real public mourning or public grief for the pandemic for many people, except for those who actually lost loved ones. This kind of collective death is an abstraction more than anything else, because we have this, we don't really want to look back or we don't want to, we just want to move on. And I never really understood that idea because like my parents or my, and my grandparents, for instance, you know, they went through war and all of that. And then when they came to the States, they just didn't want to kind of look back. They just want to move forward. And and I now I kind of under, I think I understand that sensibility more. It's just like, well, it's just mm-hmm. you just don't want to be reminded. It's unpleasant, you know. And, also,
1: it's so unimaginable, right? I remember when, it, when oh, we yeah. had 100,000 dead in the U.S. And I remember crying and crying, yeah. at everyone talking about we couldn't believe it. And then it just went to a million and it just felt like.
0: And then after that, it it was just inconceivable. Right. Yeah, absolutely inconceivable. And then uh, there was also an estimated number for China alone that leaked. I think what do you remember what that number was? It was something it was like three million. And it was probably a really low estimate. And that was probably a low estimate. But and I was just thinking about the global number of deaths. And it just you just. The mind cannot conceive of it, cannot capture it. And, um, but that's always how it is when there's just this mass death. Uh, People aren't able to really, it becomes an abstraction. It's too much, it's too much. So also I think what hasn't really been written about is just domestic life or family life or what happens within a family when family members don't get along. Or just being trapped with parents or being trapped with a wife or being trapped with a husband where suddenly, you know, there's no escape and you have to be with them day in and day out. How that kind of trauma hasn't been really publicized or processed or really written about, you know. So in the poem, it begins with that mother from Wuhan, who's a victim of domestic violence and her having literally escaping her escaping her home and her being like welded shut into her, her apartment, and I—I I think it was just a lot of strain for people to be who they, you know, to function as uh, parental figures or as children or uh, uh, or as children of parents or grandparents and and so forth. And I—I I think I was very much aware of my role as a mother during the pandemic and sort of my own kind of struggles and failures as a mother during the pandemic. So, and that's like sort of, that's the kind of subject that I also, always return to. And I'm not really gonna write about it, but it's also like in the poem, I also allude very in a very veiled way to the Atlanta massacres. And again, that's not a subject that I'm not actually going to dramatize in my poems, but that's what I was thinking of. And I was thinking about those sex workers as mothers. You know, Many of them were mothers and how many of them kept their profession hidden from their children. And I was, you know, thinking of that as
1: well. Would you read for us Spring and All from this new issue of Poetry, some of your more recent work? Sure, from Spring and All.
0: Mock is the touch of the potter, the thumbprint on clay, the unfinished warp of wood and braille of grain a knob of rope that hangs a squid that is dried for days, then eaten with wine, fermented from dredges of rice. The Choson Potter adjoins two hemispheres to make a white lopsided moon. Exalt in these imperfections, the act of creation felt in the thing, not the smooth, not the screen, and this grief that has no release, grows inward, rooting into my spine and from my head sprouts a flower of gossamer blood threads. Bash it, bash it in. And the stones weep water and the stars sink underwater. A puddle of tadpoles tickle her cupped, sunlit palms, twenty squirming commas, each with a beating heart. Amphibians are living sponges for pollutants. She releases them into the pond. I tell my glum students who are trapped on Zoom. I'll set up a Google doc where we'll share favorite poems that remind us of touch. And poems appear like a scattering of ants and trail off. Why bother? Jerking off snubbing, vibrator needs charging. Can't tickle yourself when you can predict your own movements. A poem can't replace his breath. My ear spanking that ass. Volunteers at the NICU massaging preemies. Tender news, so they'll thrive. Oh, cuts and thorns that leave a glove of hives. My mother never learned how to hold a baby, though she spoon-fed me till I was five. She was a devoted mother. The obit says when they don't know a thing about her.
1: Thank you so much. You mentioned Spring and All is maybe a different is a departure from your other work and I think some have described your poetry collections as having a sort of project you know I think of it as comparable to kind of like a concept album there are of course always structures tying a book together but sometimes that is more direct or identifiable to people whether it's the premise of the multilingual choices in translating mom or the interview format in DDR. Or Engine Empire obviously has these sequences. So you have these speculative poetics and and there's something recognizable about that. So how do you see that shifting for you or continuing for you now?
0: You know, after I complete a book, I always make life harder for myself by trying to tackle what I haven't done before or... (laughs) Writing what I've always uh, tackling a subject matter that I previously refused to do or that I've been afraid to complete, and um, with this group of poems, the challenge was that I to not have a project and to just you know look out the window and write a poem and see what would happen. And also in the past, I've often written in the persona. I was thinking, well, what if I don't have to have a persona? How will the eye act on the page? How it would it perform? Right.
1: Less of a mask. Yeah,
0: less of a mask. It was an experiment to see where it would go. But as this manuscript is growing, I do think that there is a concept. I can't escape the concept. <laughs> uh, there is a concept that are tying these poems together. And I wouldn't call it like speculative poetry, for instance, which is a genre that's been pinned to me uh, with Dance Dance Revolution and Engine Empire. It's more just a through line, I guess you could say. I was just, see, I did other day, I was looking through Tala Madani. Do you know her, Tala Madani? She's, she's a contemporary painter and she completed the sequence of paintings called Shit Mom. And They're almost like these kind of cartoonish figures in a domestic setting. And the mother is literally a pile of shit. You know, she's just like, Oozing in fecal matter, but it's cartoonish, so it doesn't look overly grotesque. It actually kind of is reminiscent of Kara Walker's work, or mm-hmm. I was thinking William Kintridge's work, or something, and that sort of use of a satiric, cartoonish figures and so forth. And as, as I was looking at her p- paintings, I like a light bulb went on and I was thinking, oh, this is what connects my prose book to the poetry is that it's the book, there's a shit mom, it's It's like, you know, these, this exploration of uh, bad mothers or shit moms. And I'm not, I'm not saying spring and all really does that. uh, But I think that there is motherhood as a subject is considered very feminine, overdone, hackneyed, trite. And yet, at the same time, to take on the subjectivity of a bad mother is still very taboo. You know, that figure is still lambasted by society. And I was been attracted to that, to the bad mother in various personas, various iterations and so forth.
1: Well, you've talked about avoiding the subject of, of your mother mm-hmm. in public writing and the Asian American narratives needing to return to the mother. And the excerpt you read sort of almost ends on the mother, mm-hmm. where There's like the feeding and the touch and then it ends on the obit, but then that devotion is sort of questioned or, or maybe it's unknown because you've written critically about something like that, like that kind of pressure pattern about Asian moms, does that liberate you in some way to write about these shit moms and be thinking about these figures, knowing that you've made clear your awareness or your resistance, your understanding of like these kind of predictions or these tropes? Mm -hmm.
0: Mm, Yeah, it's hard. One can never escape the mother figure, it seems like. And of course, it's a trope. It's definitely like an Asian-American trope. I I think with these poems, however, I am more dealing with the subject of motherhood from my standpoint as a mother. But of course, there's also the legacy and inheritance of how you were parented Mm -hmm. There's this term clinical, psychological clinical term called emotional dysregulation, which is symptomatic of all kinds of disorders from PTSD to borderline to, which is also a discounted disorder, but where the reaction to whatever inside of the reaction is always considered an overreaction or outsized. you know. So it's like, for instance, someone shouting at someone for being late I mean, maybe this is just universal. It's not just immigrants and and so forth. But I'm just interested in uh, finding more uh, vocab, uh, a richer vocabulary for that. I think it's exacerbated by the fact that you know there's often a language barrier, a cultural barrier, and and so forth. So, and also a historical barrier as well, because there's this kind of expected amnesia that's supposed to occur when you immigrate to the US and not much is known about previous lives before they've come to this country. We don't know the context, you know, a lot of times I think with the children of immigrant parents, we're looking at them on green screen, right? We're seeing them sort of flail or shout or react in such a way that seems disproportionate or out of proportionate to whatever the situation is at hand, but we don't also see the actual backdrop. We just see the green screen. There's a lot of terms that get thrown around and I think also gets criticized for being overused like PTSD or intergenerational trauma or even just trauma. Um, You know, people sort of, there are a lot of people who also criticize that kind of literature because they're like, well, this is all a certain kind of marginalized group can write about is trauma. And I was like, I do agree with it, but I think it's more about how you write it. And also, I don't think we have a variety of terms or words to describe what these certain women go through when they uh, when they come to this country.
1: You published an essay in Lit Hub about the summer of 2020 that was the sort of letter to your child. And it was literally addressed to her, I think. And I'm curious what it's like to write from the perspective of motherhood, as the child gets older, if you find the need to have new language or just shift the expectation as you write in this kind of shit mom embracing project.
0: Yeah, I mean, again, the trope of the shit mom is more kind of also directed at how the world's attitude of mothers in general and the kind of expectations are put on mothers and and how, and Jacqueline Rose talks about this a lot and how anything that's like toxic, right? Any kind of like toxic societal inequities are like sort of blamed on the mother. You know, an old example would be, for instance, during the Clinton era, you know, where Black mothers were blamed, right? Or during the Reagan era, welfare queens and so forth. But But, and it's also kind of more directed at me being a mother and sort of the expectations that I have. Yeah, no, it definitely has changed. I think I'm, you know, now that she's older, she's, and she can possibly read and write what I am working on. I am less inclined to approach a subject in a more transparent way, I think. It's like, I think I'm returning to kind of fictionalized mothers and I'm returning to persona and so Mm -hmm. forth. And I don't know if that necessarily has anything to do with my daughter growing up, but that has always been also my kind of, my process as well, where, you know, I take personal parts of my own autobiographical moments in my life, but then I also weld it to, Other lives, fictional, historical, because I'm never interested in the kind of autobiographical individual life, but more about the relational, how it relates to other lives in large. I'm much more interested in the collective.
1: Yeah. And the multiple realities. And the multiple
0: realities, yeah, which is why I always eventually return to the persona.
1: Yeah. Do you know that Korean kid story about the fight that the body's having? Mm -mm. the whole joke of it, or I don't know, I guess it's more like a fable. Mm -hmm. But everyone says, I'm the most important, I'm the most important, the hands, the feet, and they all give different reasons. And then the asshole says, I am the most important. And they're like, oh, you're just an asshole. But then the asshole stops doing its function and everybody is affected. And so, you know, the moral is sort of like every part of the body is important or something like that. But like shit also not being a bad thing, shit being like a positive, Mm -hmm. you know, product of things working. Yeah, Yeah, Yeah. no,
0: definitely. You should let it, you should let it out. You know, it's not, (laughs) um, it's not this abject matter that, you know, I mean, we're usually so repulsed by it, right? Because it is reminds us of, it's something that should be that we think should be inside the body, excrement should be inside the body or out of sight, but it's it's important to <laughs> excrete it out as as well. But you know, I was also in re- um, writing this poem, these poems, I've been really I've been turning to a lot of Korean's feminist poets as well, like Kim Hee soon, and mm-hmm. I also translated a collection of poems by chesun Sun Ja. And so I was um, right. I'm um, really inspired by her poetry as well. For her, actually, it's fascinating. Kim Hye-soon writes a lot about being a mother in a way that's just so raw and excoriating that I don't really see in a lot of American, read in a lot of American poetry. Uh, with Chae Seung-jae, It's uh she was single all her life and she was childless. And it's actually, a lot of her poems are explore that subjectivity of being alone and being a single woman in a society where once you become a mother or you become a wife of someone, your, you, your name get, becomes, your name is erased and you become someone's mother or someone's wife, you know, and it, they're really wrenching poems that explore solitude.
1: Yeah, those are, I think, two really good examples of different ways to approach the kind of disgust that's put on Mm-hmm. Yeah the the women in different ways. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah no definitely and I'm interested in exploring in both my prose and my poetry um how their younger generation, the younger generation of women, more and more women in developed countries of a certain class are refusing to become mothers. This, And I'm curious about that kind of collective refusal that's happening mm-hmm. in Korea, definitely. And it's hap- in East Asian countries, in Japan. I think Korea, it's the worst where this young younger generation of women are no longer, you know, having children where there is this crisis where if they don't populate or if they don't reproduce then that would mean an economic crash and i was thinking about also just you know during times of war or during times of real extreme privation you stop getting your period you stop having being able to have children because your body knows that it's a hostile landscape for children and I'm not saying that's what's happening to the bodies of these women, but I'm thinking about just the unlivable conditions that capitalism has imposed on Korea, that it's no longer become, the city has no longer become livable, that women have just refused to reproduce. And of course, it's also related to the patriarchy, right, that has just come to a head. And now there's this like all all upright gender war that's happening in Seoul and the way these women after generations of just, you know, which Kim Hay-Soon just really wrenchingly writes about of patriarchy in terms of the years of dictatorship and also the effects of American intervention and so forth, where we have come to the point where women are just boycotting being mothers, boycotting, becoming wives and so forth. And I see uh, Seoul, I see South Korea as like kind of a harbinger of the effects, the consequences of what late capitalism will do to a country, I feel like, because Korea, South Korea is such a tiny country and so wired. It happens to South Korea a little bit earlier than it does to, say, the U.S. or other developed nations. Anything technological. Yeah, anything technological and so forth.
1: This is also a bit of a leap, but did you ever hear about Sammy Lee, who's also a Los Angeles Korean? No, He was like an Olympic diver. He was like the first, I think, Asian. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. He was in Los Angeles and practicing, and he would not be allowed in the pool in, I think it was Pasadena, because they only allowed, you know, non-white people on International Mm -hmm. Day. And so he would practice by diving into sand, like dry sand in his coach's backyard because the pools in LA were, you know, discriminatory. And i had always heard this story because, you know, there's a school named after him in L.A., but that this kind of triumph, this neoliberal like model minority thing of, you know, him working hard and making it happen anyway. And then only years and years later, I found out that not only was that international day only for men, but there was no day. There was a white woman day and then there was the international day where the black and Latino and Asian men were allowed, and then there were no women. Mm -hmm. And that wasn't a part of the narrative that he was talking about in his life or the Los Angeles School District was talking about as this alum. And uh, that seems so connected to what you're talking about, where we have these conversations about technology or empire or economy and kind of forget this whole sector of reality or have it kind of conveniently flattened in this way. Mm. Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that is definitely connected. And that's really interesting. I didn't even, I didn't know that either about Sammy Lee. Like I didn't know. I mean, oh, maybe
1: you'll do your pool essay and then you could talk about it. Yeah,
0: the Red Hook essay. That was an essay that I wrote and abandoned. And I, that's another essay that I will not look go back to or <laughs> to look back on. <laughs> yeah, but if I did know a, about it, I would have written about it, yeah. definitely. Yeah.
1: So many outlets and so many individuals have been approaching you about asian So what was that like to have it happen on such an extreme level after Minor Feelings came out? And what did it feel like to be treated as an expert on the subject when it was also a very personal book and, you know, not an ethics studies scholarship or, you know, what you're primarily teaching?
0: It was a lot of pressure, you know, at the time we were all stuck Inside, right. Uh, it was all over Zoom or email, and um, but there was a lot of confusion and rage and panic during that time, and and a lot of uncertainty. And I thought because I because I had a bigger platform, I had a responsibility to lend my voice to these narratives about. Asianness or anti-Asian-ness that were really getting it wrong. And I think I initially felt that impulse when there were these anti-Asian incidents happening and there were a few reports about it and the reports were just so, like, it wasn't getting at... Um, the heart of it? The heart of it, yeah, uh, the heart of it. And so I felt like I had to write... And so I wrote an article... It was in the New, York, New Times York Times about it because I just felt like there was a hole or missing, uh, there was a hole in, in in the media narrative. But then that just sort of escalated where I was definitely positioned. And of course, in, in this sort of spokesperson role, and then of course, that co- what comes with that is not just expectation, but resentment and this accusations of how right. I am, um, I'm not representative of this group, of people or whatever. But of course I never intended it to be neither, never intended minor feelings to be that either. Minor right. feelings, actually, I was thinking, oh, there'll be, uh, this will be a book for other poets of color, <laughs> you know? And so it was, um, so definitely, it definitely like escalated. Mm-hmm. And it was a kind of pressure that I felt very un- uncomfortable to be in because that's not uh, my... Role is to be a poet, not a therapist or a organizer. And people were coming to me for questions that I just really didn't have. Right. But I still felt compelled to say something. And I don't. I really thought that everyone should, everyone, anyone who had any kind of presence online or offline, should be lending their voice. And that's how I thought of it as just uh, being a part rather than being the speaker and so forth. But, you know, this is how the news cycle works, you know, and now we're in 2023 and all of that has died down. People are not interested in the anti-Asian narrative, though it's still happening and You know, I've also heard of people, even a few people saying that the quote-unquote racial reckoning is over among progressive circles, which I always find both curious and predictable, right? There are always these upheavals and then there are these dips where people like to pretend that it's all over until the next sort of crisis that amplifies it again. But I'm really quite happy to be back just quietly writing you yeah know? quiet poet <laughs> being the quiet poet just you know and teaching you know I'm in California now and it's it's much quieter here and I like it
1: do you feel any of the differences of the you know, Longstanding East Coast, West Coast Asian ideas. Now that you're back in California and have left Jersey. Oh, is there
0: like a war between East Coast Asian and West
1: Coast Asian? I always felt like I heard, you know, this idea. Maybe it was just uh, in my generation, but there was this idea about uh, we used Zanga and they used MySpace or, you know, like. Oh. Are uh, you a West
0: Coast Asian?
1: Yes. Yes. I'm from California. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. I mean,
0: I had to say that most Asians come from the West Coast and then they either might, they move to the East Coast. They just, and then they become right. East Coasters, uh, East Coast f- folks. Um, yeah. I don't know. I haven't like really met enough Asians in the North. I know. I definitely know LA Asians yeah. and I think LA Asians are the best. Uh, <laughs> I know those are fighting words, but um I don't really, I haven't read, really met very many Bay Area Asians yet. So it's a different cohort, you know, there's it's a different cohort. I will say, you know, if we're gonna do West Coast versus East Coast, I do miss the East Coast. I miss like, the, you know, New Yorkers are just, they're like, you know, they're more, they're blunt, they're bold, they're they speak their mind, you know, and I miss that. Yeah. Californians are nicer, you know, but it's also <laughs> not as fun.
1: You know? Yeah, I think that's so true. There is something weird about New York where everybody's very professional at being in public so that like, mm-hmm. you know, if someone's like taking a stroller down the subway step, someone always just picks it up. It's not a big deal. You don't need to say thank you a million times. You know, I, I do yeah. like that pulse in yeah. New York.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, New Yorkers will be rude, but they help you out.
1: Yes. You know, whereas
0: in California... They'll be nice to you whether they help you out I don't know that remains to be seen we'll see. yeah
1: well it's so exciting that you're there I mean mm-hmm. how long have you been at Berkeley and in, in the English department?
0: I just started this is I guess my second week into the semester my first semester at UC Berkeley and I moved to uh, Berkeley exactly. Two months
1: ago. Exciting. Is your family yeah. sort of adjusting well as well? Is there a lot of newness?
0: Uh, yes. <laughs> I, I think it's, it's you know, moving to a new city, a new coast is really huge. It's like an endless to-do list of what you have to do. Everything that I took for granted in New York, like going to the pediatrician or going to see my dentist, uh, you know, that all becomes challenging like finding a new pediatrician, finding a dentist. uh, It's like starting over. Just starting over, which is more, it's more of an adventure. It's something that's expected, right? When you're 18, in your twenties or in your thirties, but when you're in your forties and you have a family, it's just, I don't know. (laughs) I don't recommend it. <laughs> yeah, maybe it's, it just takes longer. It's a longer. tough adjustment. Yeah. It takes longer. People say, depends who you talk to, but so, um, people say the adjustment period can last from anywhere between two years and five years. So Whoa.
1: Yeah, I know that's pretty long, right? Yeah, I guess um, we'll see. I mean, I'm more optimistic, so maybe a, yeah. maybe a year and a half. Who knows?
0: I mean, another friend of mine said one year, but she's she's a pretty optimistic person, so I'm gonna, <laughs> I'm gonna, yeah. I'm gonna say it's probably gonna be two years.
1: Yeah, it is true. The optimists are not the best at predictions. No, no. Yeah,
0: no, no. I'm more of a defensive pessimist myself. So
1: yeah, then you can prepare. Yeah. Um, So we have a question into the void, which is a question saved for you by someone who didn't know it would be answered by you. But this one's coming from someone whose work I know you love, Douglas Kearney.
0: Oh, I hope I can uh, answer his question.
1: (laughs) All right, out there, mystery poet. Well, you're not a mystery to yourself. You're just a mystery to me. Or maybe you are a mystery to yourself. And that is why you write poems. But here is a question to the void that I would like to put out there. What is something that nobody ever asks you about, about your poetry or your poetics that you just wish somebody would ask you?
0: That's a great question. I have to think about that one though. I don't know if I can answer that right away. Oh my God! What is it? Mm. I don't know. It's it's like actually, it's sort of the. It's a question that's more. All I can think of is what music do you like to listen to while you're writing poetry? Um, that's
1: a great question. Yeah.
0: Because. What music do
1: you listen to? Uh,
0: right now. um Um, I've been missing New York so I've been listening to a lot of Cardi B Uh, not while I'm writing but it's more just like outside you know when I'm just around this period when I'm working on a book I guess that would be the question like what's your soundtrack What's your soundtrack for the book that you're working on? I think it's like you know fun questions like that. You know, usually the questions are very serious and you know, they're totally. intellectual. or It's the kind of questions that's about the writerly process, and perhaps that's the kind of question that I would like to be asked: is what's the soundtrack of your of the book that you're working on?
1: Yeah, I think I didn't ask you enough about uh, rap. Oh yeah, I think
0: it's also because <laughs> there's not enough. Uh, you know, when you're in New York, you just like you're. I'm I'm not I'm not a hip hop aficionado by any means, but it's just always on the street. You're just out on the street, and you hear music or just music being blasted from the car and so forth. And in Berkeley, there's what I noticed is the absence of hip hop, which, you know, I think is evidence of the demographic of people here and so forth. And there are less younger people in Berkeley. So I think I'm like, I miss that. So I've been just sort of personally more listening to um, more hip hop and more Beyonce and, and so forth. Whereas interestingly, when I was in New York, I was listening to like classical Spanish guitar because <laughs> I needed, I wanted more like calmness in my apartment, you No. Know?
1: Can you listen to music with lyrics while you write? No, as I was saying, I can't listen
0: to it while I'm writing. It's always after I write or before I write. After. Yeah. So maybe I should say it's a music that you listen to during the period, around the period that you're working on the book. Yeah.
1: Nice. So do you like to write in like total silence? I need total
0: silence, but usually... In the East Coast, it was a lot of jackhammering and construction and so forth. So I would have the white noise machine on, you know. Right. And now I have that silence, so that's one benefit of being in Berkeley.
1: Well, thanks so much for doing my job for me and coming up with such a great last question. Um, maybe another question that's like that might be: Do you have any, uh, as someone you know who's writing about pottery in this poem? and who's been in the visual art world and knows so much about music. Do you have any side projects, whether of viewing and enjoying or making alongside the work that you have right now, you know, like anything that kind of connects to it or supports it, even if it's just like little drawings for Hmm, yourself. That's a good
0: uh, question. Um, I wish uh, I've just been breaking down boxes (laughs) <laughs> you know. that's an art though
1: it is an art to get them the I mean, right I'm size I'm terrible at it
0: right but uh, I, I don't I haven't I, I haven't really had time to you know craft things or make things. But then I'm also a person, my friend accused me of this, of someone who who's incapable of having hobbies. So, you know, and I think that's always been a big, just something that's been deficient, you know, in my life is like, I wish I could be the kind of person who can have a hobby like knitting or drawing pictures and so forth. But I, you know, um, I have been, you know, when I can, I like to draw little still lifes with my daughter and so forth. But, Oh, yeah. Sweet. Yeah. And I wish I could take up pottery because I am interested in in pottery. And someday when I have the, this is I'm an aspirational potter. Like when I have the time, I would like to do make little vases and, and so forth. Yeah.
1: Yeah, pottery would be a great one. I'm sure there's stuff there. I bet you could even learn how to blow glass. No, that's
0: no, that's too <laughs> sophisticated. That's just way too much.
1: I don't think well, I have the lung. I have no lung capacity right. for that. Well, the pottery will keep your hands busy and hopefully fill up your house with mm-hmm. lots of mm-hmm. chashkis. Mm-hmm. Yes, I need more chashkis. It was great to hear spring and all and, and all else. Um, thank you so much for joining and really appreciate your taking the time. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for your questions. A quiet poet thanks to Kathy Park Hong and her many soundtracks. Kathy is a poet, writer, and professor who has published three volumes of poetry and the collection of essays, Minor Feelings, An Asian American Reckoning, which was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. You can read work from Spring and All in the September 2023 issue of Poetry in print and online. If you're not yet a subscriber to the magazine, there's a special rate for podcast listeners. For a limited time, you can get a full year of the magazine for $20. That's 10 book-length issues for $20. Visit poetrymagazine.org slash podcast offer to subscribe. poetrymagazine.org slash podcast offer. This show is produced by Rachel James, Music in the episode came from Reservoir, Alabaster de Plume, John McCowan, Rob Mazurik, and Irreversible Entanglements. Until next time, for autumn and all, thanks for listening.